morning to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. 1 Samuel chapter 4. This morning as you turn to 1 Samuel 4, we're going to return to an idea that I introduced about a month ago when we talked about Hannah and Eli back in chapter 1, which is how to walk with Jesus in heartbreak and sorrow. And the point of that message was that when we walk with Jesus well in times of grief, loss, heartbreak, and longing, Jesus uses those seasons to help us learn how to draw near to the sorrowing, how to weep with those who weep, how to grow in compassion and mercy, because through them, we learn to cling to the promises of God in hope. And we learn ourselves how to see and know Jesus' presence with us in the valley of the shadow of death, and therefore, how to help each other see and know that Jesus is near. Uh, This morning, we're coming back to this theme because in our text, Israel faces a very difficult moment. She suffers a humiliating defeat. She's mourning the dead, and God's leaders ask themselves, why? Why has the Lord defeated us? That's a question so many of us have asked in so many different contexts. Uh, Why has my search for a spouse gone on so long? Uh, No matter what I try, why has my marriage been so difficult? Uh, Despite everything I've done, why is my relationship with my children so tense? Uh, Why am I always barely able to get by? Why can't I get ahead in my, my place of work? These are all different ways of asking the question, why has the Lord defeated us? Why has our striving and work proved useless, fruitless, or worse, resulted in devastating loss and heartbreak? Learning to respond well to that question is at the heart of our text this morning. Uh, But what you're going to see this morning is the wrong answer played out by God's people, which is, well, clearly, I need to take control. Uh, clearly, uh, I need to create a situation where Jesus will have to give me the good thing that I want. Uh, it's a response you'll see that feeds impatience, greed, fear, distrust, pride, idolatry, the very opposite of the things that Jesus wants us to learn in times of loss and heartbreak and sorrow. And I know most of us know that seeking control is bad and resting in Jesus is good, right? Control, bad. Rest, good. Mm. Uh, But I also know that even as I I say this, most of us, if not all of us, are feeling a conflict in our heart between knowing that we want to control because it makes us feel safe and wanting to rest in Jesus' control because we know that there we're actually safe. Uh, My goal this morning is to help us get on the right side of that struggle by first reflecting on why God's people were impatiently waiting. That's our first point, impatiently waiting. And second, I want to look at their solution, which was to try and take control and the fear that that desire was rooted in. And then finally, I'm going to reflect with you on what the right response to that question would look like. And that's the point that I've titled Seeking Wisdom. Uh, So let's read 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 11 pray, and then let's learn how to face and answer the question, why has the Lord defeated us? 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And the word of the Lord, excuse me, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, 
Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a great, very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Thus far the reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come this morning to reflect and to hear your word, uh, we come mindful that your word is life, that it is light, that it is instruction. And uh, Lord, we want all of these things for ourselves and for our neighbors. Lord, we want to be brought alive by your word. We want to see our lives and you and how to walk by your word. Uh, we want to be instructed in how we should go. But Lord, we know that if your spirit does not bless your word, it will not do these things for us. And so, Lord, we ask that in your mercy, your spirit would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe your word. And Father, we ask that the words of my mouth as your preacher and the meditation of all our hearts as those called call to hear and respond to your word, that it would all now be pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I used to have a paper document about this thick. Uh, of hundreds of quotes with appropriate citations uh, from all the books that I'd read from 2000 to 2008. Uh, but when I moved to San Diego and from San Diego to Seattle, uh, one of the boxes never made it. I don't know if it got lost or, or stolen, but if it was stolen, the thief got a treasure trove of really, really excellent quotes. Uh, on that document somewhere is a quote from Charles Spurgeon who said basically, if the Lord had told me I had five years to preach the gospel, I would spend three years studying. And I later learned that Spurgeon was riffing off of Martin Luther, who said, if I had known I had three years to preach the gospel, I would spend two years preparing. 
And then I later learned that Luther himself was riffing off of one of the church fathers, and I'm pretty sure it was Augustine. I don't have my documents, so I can't tell you for sure. But he said something like, if I was told I had 10 years to minister, I would spend eight in study and prayer and contemplation. Uh, I wish I could tell you those quotes exactly and where they are. Like I said, the document's gone, and I'm not going to put the work in to reproduce that. Uh, but be that as it may, the gist of all those is accurate. And the idea there is actually very important. And it's worth a lot of reflection because the substance of it has remained, as you can see, from Augustine to Luther to Spurgeon to now, with the church for roughly 2,000 years of Christian history. Uh, this is an idea that God's people have found useful for millennia, which is if Jesus gives you a task to do, it doesn't mean that you are immediately ready to do it. No, it takes time with Jesus in prayer. It takes time with Jesus in the Bible, time with Jesus among his people, time with living with Jesus day in and day out to become the kind of person who can do the task Jesus has given us to do well. And that connects very well to the biblical idea of seasons that we've been reflecting on since uh, we began the year when we were in Luke's gospel. The idea that Jesus does different things in different seasons of our lives, just like he does different things in seasons of nature, right? In spring, there's new growth. In the summer, there's fruit. In the fall, there's harvest and transition to what I would call hidden growth. And then in the winter, there's a time of barrenness, but also a time of rest. And for those who are here, I hope you remember that uh, in God's eyes, no one season is better than another. Uh, each one has its own blessings and its own challenges. And I also hope you remember that uh, God gives us seasons because he doesn't want us to have everything at once. He doesn't want to give us everything at once. That would just be so overwhelming and so nuts. I want you to picture this. Picture your life where you're born, you graduate high school, you get married, you have kids, you retire, you watch your grandkids, and you die all at once. All at once. Can you imagine that process without years intervening between them, decades intervening between them, and then seasons within those years where you grow and develop and mature and change and learn? I mean, that would be such a terrible way to live if that was the case. Thank God that he loves us enough that he doesn't make us live our lives that way. No, instead he gives us stages in life. He gives us seasons in life, years to grow so that we can progress and mature, even heal in ways that are actually beneficial for us. Why am I talking about seasons here? Because there's a bigger context to this battle. At the end of verse 1, we're told that Israel is encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. And Aphek is actually an important place at this time in Israel's life. Because back in Joshua chapter 3, God tells Joshua, Joshua, you're old. Actually, he says, you're very old. You imagine God coming to you and saying, you're a very old man, Joshua. But that's what he says. He says, Joshua, you're very old. And there's still a lot of the promised land that I have yet to give to Israel. And then God lists off a bunch of areas, including Aphek, that is the case. And then God says, I want you to go ahead. I want you to allot these areas to Israel, but do not try to take them. Because I, the Lord, I'm going to give them to you, 
when it's time. And you can see here, God is setting up a season of waiting in Israel's life. Jesus told Joshua, uh, I've given you a lot already, but I've not given you everything yet. I'm going to give you everything, but not yet. And when you get it, it's going to be me that gives it to you, and it's going to be in my timing. It's not going to be in your timing. And the reason for this, if you read through Joshua, isn't because Jesus is being a jerk and is just saying, I have the power, so I'm going to exercise it however I want. No, he knows that Israel isn't ready to have all of it yet. She needs more seasoning. She needs to walk with God in blessing and learn how to handle that well, like we talked about. She needs to walk with God in sorrow and waiting, as we've been talking about and are talking about, and learn how to handle that well. Israel needs to learn how to develop in her relationship with Jesus. She needs to learn how to pray in different seasons and in different times, how to listen, how to love, how to be generous, how to be faithful, how to be merciful, how to rest, how to work, when to rest, when to work. She needs to learn how to handle power with humility and with kindness. She needs to learn how to reject the idols of political power and military strength by trusting in Jesus' plan and in his presence and in his help. And uh, given the distance between Joshua and our passage, which is hundreds of years, and also given the shape of Deuteronomy, which I'm not going to go in now. If you were here for that sermon series years ago, maybe you'll remember, Maybe this will make sense. Uh, I think we can also say that one of the things God wants Israel to learn is how to pass those lessons, how to pass those skills on to future generations, to pass them on to their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. Because it takes time to grow into that kind of person and into that kind of people and to have that kind of culture that feeds and sustains and upholds it. It takes intentionality. It takes good discipleship. It takes good catechesis, which is the, the instruction in the faith and the contents of the faith, what we believe, and in the life of faith, how to live it out. It takes prayer. It takes the word. It takes living with Jesus and seeking his face through daily ups and downs to get there. And it takes time to pass that wisdom and to pass those skills on to our children and our grandchildren and to our visitors and our new members. And that's why God told Joshua about Aphek and places like it, not yet. You should allot it. I'm promising it to you. But my people need to mature so that they'll be ready when I give them all of it. Now back to our passage in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. Uh, we're told that the word of Samuel, who we know is established as Jesus' prophet, we looked at that last week, came to all Israel. So for the first time in a long time, God is speaking again. He's coming in power again. And Israel's response to this word, which is a response of immaturity and impetuousness, which is say childishness, is to say, great, let's finally go get what's ours. And I'm belaboring this point uh, because it's important. That response shows us that Israel hadn't yet matured. And uh, as we reflect on this, I, th I think about us today, and I think about how we hear God's promises, when we hear God's promises, or even when we just see good things that God has for us, not things that God has promised specifically, but just good things that his grace makes available generally to 
everybody. What's the first thing that we want to do when we hear the promises and we see the good things? Well, we want to name them and claim them, right? I mean, we don't use that terminology because that would align us with, the, with theology that we don't like, but it's basically what we do. We focus on the thing we want. We don't do what Spurgeon, Martin Luther, Augustine learned to do from Scripture, and I, which I wonder if they learned to do from reflecting on Jesus' own life, where if you think about it, Jesus had 33-ish years to do ministry, and he spent 30 not doing ministry, but growing and preparing as a human being, right? Fully God, fully man, as a human being to be able to do that ministry well. We don't do what Luther and Spurgeon and Augustine did, which is ask, well, what kind of person do I need to be to have this thing and to use it well for Jesus? And since I don't have that thing, uh, what are the things that Jesus is trying to produce in me while I wait so that when it comes, if it comes, I'll be able to receive it with joy and use it with godliness? And then and if God doesn't have that to be for me, as he didn't have it to be for Israel throughout so many years, what do I need to pass on to those after me so that if Jesus gives it to them, they can use it well for Jesus? Uh, but as we talked about a few weeks ago, Israel wasn't taught to ask those kinds of questions. Remember, she's still in the time of Judges, which was a time of impetuous actions, violent responses, poor catechesis. It was a time of uh, failed and broken discipleship where God's people weren't taught to take time to grow, to take time to pray, to take time to study and think, to wait and learn how to wait with patience. And so uh, instead of receiving God's word, and praying and waiting instead of saying, okay, God is speaking. Now is the time to listen. Now is the time to pray and reflect, to ask Jesus what we need to mature in so that we can be the kind of people who can handle his gifts well. Instead, Israel goes off to war so that she can take what she wants. And that goes spectacularly badly. Uh, she's beaten soundly by the Philistines. And that brings us to verse 3 of our text. So in verse 3, the people of Israel, uh, those who were there at the battle, they come into the camp where the leaders of Israel are. And the elders see the people, right? And I imagine they see the people heartbroken and angry. They certainly didn't come into the camp rejoicing and glad. Right? They just suffered a huge defeat. So at least heartbroken, I imagine also angry. But because at this point in time, the elders of Israel are not spiritually and emotionally mature people, because they have not learned how to handle grief, loss, and sorrow in their own life in a spiritually and emotionally mature way with prayerful, mourning, corporate grieving, because they haven't learned how to face criticism from others with humble listening or face anger with gentleness or tears with compassion, uh, because they haven't learned how to take responsibility for their own decisions with the confidence that can only come from having drilled deeply into the well of Christ's grace and found your worth in Jesus's welcome and love. Because they haven't been well seasoned, they don't do what elders should do, which is admit responsibility if they screwed up, listen to the grieving, draw near to the hurting, and then lead God's people in prayer, reflection, repentance, trust. 
Instead, they asked a question, which we talked about at the very beginning. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, uh, I want you to notice that while that question itself is great, and it gets asked at a number of important times in Israel's life, including Joshua's life, uh, when Israel was similarly defeated, they don't do what it is done the other times it's asked, which is they don't actually direct that question to Jesus. They don't say, why has the Lord defeated us? Let's pray and ask him. Everyone get on your knees and let's ask Jesus, why have we been defeated? They aren't looking for Jesus' answer. And frankly, they don't even really direct it to the people. They don't wait for them to answer. They don't say, why has the Lord defeated us? Uh, Billy, what do you think? I'm trying to think of female names and all the names and kind of other people out in the crowd. I don't want to pick on anybody, but female name, what do you think? They don't do any of that. They say, why has the Lord defeated us? As a way, I think, I think they use this question as a way to connect to the people's pain, not so that they can then bring their pain together to Jesus and learn spiritual maturity in this difficult time. No, I think they use this question to connect to the people's pain so that the people will buy into their solution, which is in the middle of verse 3, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it or he, uh, both are possible, uh, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, I think this is important to realize the Israelites know the ark is not the Lord. But what they also know is that the ark represents God's promised presence to save his people. And since time is running on, I think what's behind their thoughts is revealed by the Philistines' response, which is this basic logic. If we can bring God's ark out here, he'll have to do what we want. Because if he doesn't do what we want, then the Philistines will think that they are stronger than God. And God would never allow anyone to think that they are stronger than him. So they tried to create a scenario where they could control God by forcing him into a situation where he would have to act in the way they wanted him to, to protect his reputation and his good name. Uh, God has to give us victory because if he doesn't, he'll look like an empty suit. He'll look like a fraud, a failure, a fake. As you think about this, I think from here we could go all kinds of different ways about how this plays out in our own life. I think we could talk about how we try to control God by manipulating him, how we withhold our ties from God or withhold our service from God, withhold our worship from Jesus until he gives us what he wants. You know what? Jesus, I really want, uh, I really want a, a good job, a good wife, a good husband, a good children, good parents, good uh, food, whatever it is. And I'm not getting it. So you know what? Like, I'm not going to give until you give it to me. Because if you don't give it to me, then that will prove that you're not really real. Right? We can try to manipulate God. We could also talk about all the good things that God's promised, or just, again, good things that are good that he hasn't promised, but his grace is just generally made available. That would be such a blessing, blessing to have. But instead of saying to ourselves, I'm going to use this time of waiting to learn how to patiently walk with Jesus and drill deeply into the well of Christ's grace, we'll say instead, God, if you loved me, you would do this. We could talk about the different kinds of relationships 
where we want to force God to give us what we want right now, our children's spiritual and emotional maturity, or our parents, or our spouses, or our bosses, or our friends, right? We try to rush God's timetable. Right? We could talk about our desire to manipulate. We could talk about our desire to rush. We could talk about our, our distrust. But what I want to ask more right now, having sort of just raised that generally, is ask a general question of why? Why do we do those things? Why did Israel bring the ark here into the, into the battle? What motivates that desire to control God, to give us what we want when we want it? And the answer is fear. We're afraid. We're afraid of loss. We're afraid of the pain involved in waiting. We're afraid that Jesus won't act in time for us to enjoy it the way we want to. Like Abraham, who did not get to enjoy the promised land. We don't want to be like, Abraham, I don't want to wait. I want it all now. Isn't the purpose of Abraham being Abraham that I'm not Abraham and I get everything and he doesn't, right? The root of desire, of our desire to control is fear. And you can see that fear in the Philistines' reaction in verses 7 through 9. The Philistines hear that the ark has come into Israel's camp. They freak out because gods, in quote, have come into Israel's camp. They cry out, woe to us, we're going to die. But they don't run away. Instead, they decide to double down because like Israel, they are also afraid of loss. They were also afraid of hardship. So they decided to fight against God, which is another way of trying to control him, isn't it? I mean, here's a whole other sermon, right? Israel wants to force God to act. The Philistines want to stop God from acting. At the heart of both desires to control, to start, his, to start him working and to stop him working, is fear. Fear specifically of loss. Why has the Lord defeated us today. But what's interesting in this, in this story, Israel is afraid of loss. The Philistines are afraid of loss. Do you see who's not afraid to lose? Jesus. His sense of self-worth, his ego, if you will, uh, isn't damaged by losing to people because Jesus knows that even in seasons of loss, he will bring growth and goodness out of it. Because Jesus knows exactly who he is. He is the God who can and will bring blessing to his people in every season, even in the valley of the shadow of death, because he is the God of resurrection and life. How else could he endure the humiliation and the defeat on the cross that he suffered? My friends, what you see here in this story is Jesus is not afraid of grief, loss, sorrow, and mourning. Because he knows that there is no season where he is powerless or inactive. There is no time when he cannot and is not working to save sinners and shape and mature his people and bring repentance and growth. Which is why Jesus chose to be defeated here, just like he chose to be defeated on the cross. Otherwise, the specific kind of growth that comes from living with Jesus 
in suffering, heartache, longing, and loss would never arrive. See, what Jesus is saying here in these events is, look, you guys want the life of summer, but I'm not through teaching you the lessons of winter. I haven't even taught you the lessons of spring yet, and I'm I'm not going to fast forward through them. That would be bad for you. You need to learn humility. You need to learn trust. You need to learn patience. You need to learn generosity in tight circumstances before moving forward into the new things I have for you. You need these years of seasoning if good ministry is going to happen in the future. And in that light, let me just close with a brief reflection on what a better response to the question, why did the Lord allow us to be defeated, would look like. Uh, It looks like seeking wisdom, which is, biblically speaking, the skill of living well with God in all the seasons and situations and areas of life. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is a skill. It is the skill of living well with God in all areas and situations of life. That's what wisdom is, biblically speaking. It's not Gnostic knowledge. It's not secret you know, axioms. It's not Yoda speaking backwards. Mm, teach you, I will. Right? It's none of that. It is the skill of living well with God in all areas and situations in life. So how do you practice the skill of wisdom uh, when you face the question, why has the Lord defeated us? Well, first, this is, this is what wisdom does. First, you mourn with Jesus. You take your sadness to him. You take your frustration to him. You grieve in his presence by yourself and with other people. No one grieves well alone. We were not created to do that. You go to Jesus and you are sad and you cry out and you pray and you grieve, sometimes with words, sometimes just with emotions. And then you turn that into a prayer together where you ask God, why and what do you have for me in this? And how do you want me to grow? What are you trying to teach me? Show me what you want from me, what you want for me. Help me to see you in this. Help me understand how to move forward with you in this season of heartbreak, heartache, and loss, in this season of defeat. And then, and here's the hard part. I mean, some of you think that grieving with Jesus in prayer with other people is the hard part. This is the hard part. And then you wait. You wait for the Lord to reveal his lessons to you through the Bible, through his people, in his timing. You wait for Jesus to work. You wait for him to act. You wait for him to bring what he needs to bring into your life. And this, by the way, is exactly what it looked like in Joshua's life. In the book of Joshua, there's a battle at a city called Ai, A-I, and there Israel is defeated soundly. And so Joshua does all of this. He says, why is the Lord defeated us this day? And he goes and he mourns and he cries out to the Lord. He does it individually. He does it with God's people. He prays to Jesus. And then he and Israel listen to the Lord's answer and they wrestle through it together. Now, the difference between what I'm talking about and Joshua is that for Joshua, the answer came quickly. It seems like it happened like within moments. Our answers usually don't, do they? Uh, Like Hannah at the beginning of 1 Samuel, who we looked at, sometimes we can go 
years asking God why. Sometimes it's years of heartbreak and frustration, but we can do that with hope, beloved, even though it's hard, if we know that Jesus has good things for us in this season, and if we draw near to him in that season, individually and together, if we know that God is doing things for us in a difficult season, that even in a time of defeat and in waiting, Jesus is doing good things in us, if we know that he's giving us the opportunity to grow in him, that doesn't come from other seasons. You don't grow with God in a season of blessing in the same way that you grow with him in a season of waiting and vice versa. Different lessons for different seasons. If you know that God is teaching you very specifically certain things in this time and season so that he can shape us into the kind of people who have wisdom to live well with Jesus in whatever place we're in, then we can do that with hope. And even with joy. Not joy that doesn't cry, but confident happiness in the presence of Jesus. And we can also do this knowing that even if we're waiting for things that aren't for us, maybe we're waiting for family dynamics to change. Maybe we have abusive family dynamics that we are slowly waiting for Jesus to build out of us so that we don't respond with violence but with gentleness or yelling but with patience like we're waiting for that and we're anxious for it and we're begging god for change but we know that hey like i'm old god may be saying to you you're very old he wouldn't say that to any of you it's not going to be totally for you but it can be for your kids so that even if we're waiting for things that aren't for us fully we can hand over the wisdom needed for the next generation to use them well Hand over the skill of waiting patiently and being kind and praying and mourning and grieving with Jesus. Beloved, in the seasons that we're in, God is shaping us, he's maturing us, he's growing us, he's teaching us compassion and prayer. He's giving us hearts that can empathize and be generous, that are not repelled by sorrow, but draw near to it as he himself draws near to us. If we can get this truth, rooted deep down in our souls. And if we can do this as a church together, then we will not be, uh, then we will not so easily fall to temptation to try and control Jesus and force him to give us what we want. Instead, we will be asking Jesus together to use this situation through the power of his spirit to turn us into the kind of people who can use what he's already giving us and what he's going to give us well. We'll be the kind of people who can wait and rest in the timing of Christ. We'll be the kind of people who can join with Augustine, Luther, and Spurgeon, and Jesus, who said, I have 10 years of ministry, I'd like to spend eight years waiting so that through prayer, Bible reading, thinking, and living with God's people, I can be the kind of person who will use it well and practice wisdom well for Jesus. That's what I want for me. It's what I want for us. I hope it's what you all want too. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, help us. Help us to walk well with you. Help us when we're in seasons of grief, loss, and sorrow to mourn with you, 
to pray to you, to rest in you, and to wait on you, and to do this uh, individually and together so that as a body we can grow and mature and experience the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Uh, And please, Lord, help us to do this with each other uh, so that together we will be more and more faithful representatives of Christ, more mature Christian adults who live well for Jesus and who are able to experience more his joyful presence in all times and places. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, Let's stand together and uh, let's sing in response how deep the Father's love for us. be seated. And as you're seated this morning, I hope you can see in this table that Jesus understands the difficulty of waiting. Um, I read a a book recently called Jesus's Hidden Years and Yours. It's uh, we'll talk about it later, I think, more as a body. But one of the things that the author said, which I think was very interesting, is do you think that in some way in his humanity, Jesus was sort of sometimes chomping at the bit to get this redemption thing going? Like being 28 years old and not healing the sick guy on the side of the road, not multiplying food for the hungry, not dying on the cross, and yet he waited patiently for the Father's timing so that when it was right, he could do the thing that only God himself could do, which was 
die on the cross and rise again from the dead to save us for our sins. Jesus understands what it means to wait. He understands what it means to long. He understands what it means uh, to experience times of grief, loss, and sorrow. And he also knows that it, uh, how, therefore, to wait with you, to draw near to you, to fill you with the exact kind of grace that you need so that you can make it safely to himself. And this table also shows us not only that Jesus understands this, but that there truly is life on the other side. Jesus' waiting resulted in the fruit of eternal life for all of God's people. And he promises you that as part of his people, whatever waiting God has you in right now will bear fruit of life through Christ for you, for your family, for your loved ones, because Jesus is with you to bless you in it. So as we come to this table this morning, we come as those... Um, who are needful of Christ's presence, become as those who long for it. Uh, we also need to come as those who are baptized communicant members in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a baptized communicant member, if you've been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you've made profession of faith in any church that belongs to Jesus Christ, Jesus welcomes you to this table. He commands you to come to this table. He wants you here. He wants you to know that while you're waiting, he's with you. While you're suffering, he's with you. And it's not fruitless. It's fruitful. He's working in you to do things for your good. Uh, we, the way we take communion here is uh, we'll have our live stream worker and our penis come forward. They'll take the bread and the cup. Then we'll have the left side come forward. They'll take the bread and the cup, sit down. The right side will come forward. They'll take the bread and the cup and sit down. Then we'll eat and drink together. Uh, the outside ring is grape juice. The inside ring, rings are wine. You can take either one. If you're not baptized or you've not made a profession of faith in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you can either walk forward and pass by or stay seated. No judgment, no problem. And if you want to talk about baptism, profession of faith, following Jesus, anything you heard, I would love to have that conversation with you after the service. Uh, but for now, uh, let's come and let's commune with our Lord Jesus Christ and let's know deep in our hearts that he is with us to bless even these seasons to his glory and to our good. Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this table which you've set before us. And Lord, we pray that in your mercy, you would draw near to us and that you would help us uh, know that you are near to us. Father, as we partake of this bread and drink of this cup, we pray that we would know deep in our hearts that our Lord Jesus Christ knows what it means to be broken and bruised. And he knows even more how to bring life to us through the breaking and the bruising. Because he is the resurrection of the dead. And he has given us himself. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, I started that a little early, but that's okay. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And after giving thanks, as was just done in his name, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And in the same way, they took the cup with our live stream worker and penis. Please come forward and receive the body and blood of Christ. <laughs> 